Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and, Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Hello, um, my name is Helmut Hauser. I'm a senior lecturer in robotics at the University of Bristol and I work in soft robotics and morphological computation. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, what is the first robot you built and what was the feeling at this time? Oh, okay, um, so I think where I was involved in building robots the first time was uh, in the Octopus project um, where we used the Octopus tentacle to um, build a system that was able to compute. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, so most of the work was done obviously by a PhD student, uh, but I was involved in, in later using it in, in a setup um, where we tried to prove uh, morphological computation in a real robotic system. Mm-hmm. And this was really exciting. Mm-hmm. So from your experience, um, how you would define soft robotics uh, from your perspective? Yes. Um, so I'm always struggling to find a good definition for soft robotics, mm-hmm. but um, I don't think it's really necessary. I, my approach is to be as inclusive as possible. So we want to include many people who are um, working at the fringes of soft robotics. So we include people who might not even consider themselves as soft roboticists at the beginning um, because they are not building completely soft robots, mm-hmm. but I think uh, it's um, a gray area between conventional rigid robots uh, and, and soft robots, and um, defining it is basically constraining the community to a subset of what is possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also hard to define what a robot is, for example, or what morphological computation is. Um, it's not easy to do that either. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, do you think that having fully soft robotics, and that's, I think, something you may be interest and having fully soft robotics. Do you think something is worthwhile to investigate in, in research? Yes, uh, yeah, definitely. I think um, there are applications for completely soft robots, but um, I don't think we have to have everything soft. I mean, there are certain advantages to having a rigid robot, right? If you want to have precise control, mm-hmm. um, um, and there's also advantages if you want to have something which is soft, right, which is much better in order to interact uh, with something, uh, to store energy, to be, um, well, robust, or for morphological computation, for example, you need some kind of softness mm-hmm. in order to have something interesting going on in the robot. But I think combining both sides is actually a solution to uh, a lot of interesting problems. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so I would like to ask you about, if we just tell our audience, what are you actually interested in soft robotics? What do you, you research interested in? Um, so I'm coming from the side of morphological computation. Mm-hmm. So I'm very interested to see how we can use the body of a robot to do something useful. Um, so I came to soft robotics through my PhD work where I looked at um, what kind of computation can we actually outsource to a physical body? So we're working on a couple of frameworks. Um, we use mass spring damper systems as a very general way to describe soft structures and biological structures. 
And we're able to show that, yes, you can indeed outsource quite a lot of computation, at least theoretically. We showed um, in simulations that you can use soft-bodied structures as some kind of computational reservoir um, that you can exploit for computation. And we also showed that then later on in soft-bodied structures in real robots, like an octopus arm or in a pneumatically driven arm um, and so on. So I'm, I'm coming from, from the morphological computation side, and I can see when we look at our frameworks, uh, that one of the properties that are needed in order to have an, an intelligent uh, body or a body that can actually do something useful in a co computational sense, it has to be soft, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can imagine if you have a rigid stick, you move it around and it's rather boring, you know exactly what's going to happen. But if you have a soft structure which is uh, under-actuated, uh, there are a lot of interesting things happening. You, you get suddenly things like a memory, uh, mm -hmm. You get something like integration, you get non-interaction. And if you want to have computation in the body, you need all these kind of properties. Mm -hmm. So what kind of limitations um, in, in having this approach? Do you think there are limitations? Uh, the problem is um, we don't really know, right? Uh, there's no clear mapping from a computational task onto uh, a given morphological body. Um, what we can see is only that we need some kind of fundamental properties uh, that we potentially can outsource computation to the body. Uh, and these are, like I mentioned before, softness, com compliance, uh, high dimensional state space, nonlinear dynamics, and even noise can be beneficial. But this doesn't mean that every soft body is actually good or can do something useful. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the space is much bigger, the design space. So we really have to find a way actually to design it in such a way that we do something useful. So soft per se is not good, uh, but it's potentially good. Mm -hmm. So you're always inspired by biological system. I don't know how you relate this uh, inspiration to design, especially in logical competition. What really motivates you in design? Um, well, the concept of morphological computation, that the body actually can carry out computational functionality or uh, in a wider sense do something which is intelligent mm -hmm. uh, is directly inspired by observations in nature we can see that in nature in biological systems all over the place not just in animals but also in plants or even down to the biomolecular interaction where basically morphology is the only way that is uh, a, a, a form to implement intelligence right how to interact with the environment is completely based on a 3D shape of uh, complex molecules, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems to be that evolution has found this kind of principles as a really good way to find solutions in order to successfully interact with the environment. So that's why you can see this principle all over the place um, at different scales and different uh, domains as well. So I think it's directly inspired from nature that the body should actually take over kind of um, tasks that don't have to be controlled directly by the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, if you look at, at the evolutionary time scale, the brain or even neurons came quite late um, into play. And a lot of things have been very, very successful or systems have been very, very successful without having even neurons or not even talking about brains. Mm -hmm. So um, we have to think about that, uh, especially when we compare state-of-the-art robots. Um, they are still very much confined to lab spaces or uh, environments which are very much controlled by the designer of the robot, like an assembly line. 
But as soon as you take one of these robots out of this context in an open space world, in like in, in our day-to-day life, uh, this kind of approaches completely fail. So it does make sense to look at nature and see how nature is doing that. Can we learn something from that? And morphological computation, I think, is uh, definitely one approach that we can take from there. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting point. And uh, let me ask you about the embodied intelligence. If we're just struggling how to match a body with a brain, I don't know how you're supposed about this term in terms of what you highlighted uh, earlier about embodied intelligence. Yes. So, I mean, if you look at biology, like I said before, on the evolutionary time scale, it was first the body and the environment interacting with each other, so to say, mm-hmm. and the brain came later into the picture. Um, now, this doesn't mean that the brain is not needed, right? But I think the, the range of tasks that the brain is really good at is a different one than the body. And we also know from nature that there are a lot of things like um, physical interaction with the environment. Obviously, the body is, they are very, very important. But mm-hmm. on the other side, the brain is really good at like memory or planning or high cognitive functions in general. So there's some kind of interplay and um, we have to, and it's something that we investigate in our group as well, to understand what should be in the body and what should be in the brain and how these two mm-hmm. are, should interact with each other. Now. Of course, there are layers upon layers upon layers in a complex system like a human, right? But um, we could that sim- we could make a much simpler system in a robot where you say, well, there's a body, uh, there's a brain, and now we just have to find out how they should interact. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned embodied intelligence, which is the bigger picture, right? Um, I think what's very important to see is really how can we um, design a robot so that it interacts with the environment, gets information through this interaction, and therefore learns from that. Not just on the brain side, for mm-hmm. example, like updating models, but also on the body side. Mm-hmm. Um, you could also imagine that you have a, a robot that is completely new to a task, right? And this is similar to what we do when we learn something new. We are very much brain-driven. We try to understand what the instructor tells us, for example, if you want to learn a new sport, a tennis swing, for example. We will look at somebody doing it. Uh, we try to internalize that. And we are very stiff, basically reducing the dimensionality of our body. And we're trying to get it as close as possible by doing the same kind of swing there. But later when we get better, it seems to be this kind of control is sickering down into uh, subconscious levels. Um, this could be still in the brain, but also uh, on neuron sites, on the muscular body. But we could think, um, usually we call it muscle memory, right? But it's mm-hmm. not really in the muscles. But we could think about literally muscle memory in robots, where you say that the that first we constrain the morphology, we think very hard in the brain of the robot, and then we actually change the body in such a way that the control can be simplified over time. Mm-hmm. And when there's a new task coming up, there's a new surprise element there, and then the brain has to re-engage much more and have to control a bit more, and then we can outsource it again to the body. So there's a clear interplay between the brain and the body, mm-hmm. and it's not just a, a line which is above and below, but this line moves up and down as well. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you what is our misconceptions in soft robotics research and what you think about most, most misconceptions? Most misconceptions, that's a good question. Um, I think um, there are a few. One is I think that um, like with every new field mm-hmm. is that, um, I mean there's a lot of excitement which is good. 
uh, that suddenly we think uh, we can solve everything with soft robotics. Uh, it's a little bit like what happens in the artificial intelligence community with deep learning. Suddenly, everything looks like, okay, there's something we weren't able to solve before. Now we just add some deep learning and now it works. Mm-hmm. And the same in soft robotics, it seems to be that uh, we just try to solve everything with uh, soft robotics. Um, but I think this will settle down. Um, and at the end, we're going to have systems which are combining rigid, more conventional approaches with more um, modern soft robotic approaches in order to well have very functional systems. Mm-hmm. I think this is a very interesting point because it's this kind of hype of in research. I, I don't know how, what is, who is responsible for that. And do you think this could be misleading for starting researchers who were just um, affected by ideas or biased by certain uh, um, methods? Uh, do you have any comment about that? Yes, I think hype itself, I mean, there's a limit, right? I, mm. The thing is, um, I mean, I, I was in the lucky position when I mm-hmm. had my first poster position. I was uh, at the lab, um, the official intelligence lab in Zurich with Roger mm-hmm. Pfeiffer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I I was luckily positioned at the beginnings of soft robotics. I was, there were like the Octopus Project, uh, Locomorph, uh, Edge Robot, all this really cool project and and our lab was involved there um and um you could see that um we we were all really excited about these new new ideas but it was really hard to communicate that to funding agencies right or mm-hmm. to uh policy makers or uh well to other people in robotics to say that this is something actually which could be really cool and exciting so we, we tried to communicate that and uh, there was also a new project called Robosoft, as you might know, yeah. which was a coordinated action, was led by uh, PISA. Uh, we were part of that as well in, in here in Bristol um, and Fumi Aida was involved there as well. And uh, where well, we got some money to reach out, organize workshops, get in touch with people from industry, uh, a, a wide variety of stakeholders to, to push this kind of topic. and. Um, I mean, the idea is the more people you can excite about this topic, right? Uh, you get this momentum going and uh, suddenly you can see popping up in media. You can see that funding agencies realize, okay, that's something really interesting. You can see the Iris ICRA um, soft robotics is now a really big topic as well. It's, it's not just a fringe topic. So it's really good to see this kind of, well, you could call it hype, right? But of course, um, there's usually always an overswing and then it settles down again. So we just have to make sure in the community that we don't promise too many things. Um, but of course, we also want to get more people engaged in this kind of research, uh, also outside of robotics, especially for soft robotics. So we have to mm-hmm. make it visible and, and sell the idea as something exciting. So we have to be convinced about that. But I don't think we should make uh, false uh, claims about what soft robotics mm-hmm. can do. Mm-hmm. So it's a trade-off a little bit. Yeah, and that's a good point about, let me ask you whether, what do you think of having a niche conference for software robotics? Do you think it's a good idea? I think it's a wonderful idea because it's um, really, it, it gives the community a place, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives you this kind of yearly event where you can come together and join and, and you feel, if you're new to the community, you feel immediately welcome. Uh, you see a lot of things, what's going on. You 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 get in touch again, and, and it's easy to plan collaborations mm-hmm. because you you meet in this this very nice context. And 
it's also good to open uh, to have open discussions right about the direction of the field right if you do it alone or just in your lab or maybe with one or three other people it's not the same then have these open discussions in the community and then ask really tough questions right um where should the community go should what should we do uh, are we hyping things and all these kind of things i think this is a really good place to to have mm -hmm. yeah so what could be the most important questions that we didn't consider yet in, in soft robotics community something do you think oh we didn't consider these questions yet oh um well um if I would have one of these questions, I would work on it, I think. Um, so maybe the other way around, I think what I personally find really interesting is is um, the control side of robots, of soft robots, uh, which haven't been solved. And this is very much connected to morphologic computation. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think, um, and that's what my group is working on mostly, that we really think about, um, we have now this huge, variety of of tools at our hand different kind of materials and different kind of um, ways to build robots so we have a much bigger toolbox that we can employ and now the question is what we're going to do with that um, so um, our approach is through morphological combination but this is just one approach right um, there's so many interesting approaches uh, that you can take in order to use this toolbox um, i think Another, we should also think about the next steps, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, what we also think a lot in our group is about growing robots. So how can we uh, have systems that are even more lifelike? Um, so how you can change the morphology through growing, through interaction with the environment and so on. But this is a very personal question that I like a lot. Um, but I think the it's important that the community is open and then everyone can persuade their own kind of directions. Uh, I think it would be not good for, for the community if everyone would do the same things. Mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you about what the challenges you would like to solve in your research challenges. Yes, um, I think the one of the challenges is definitely uh, the control of robots, of soft robots specifically. I think we are still not radical enough in this direction. Uh, Hmm. as a community um, looking at, at soft robotics it, it came out of um, a community like living machines or artificial life where people are very open-minded very artistic um, a lot of crazy ideas and um, and you can see that in soft robotics there are so many really cool things going on uh, because we all we have this kind of toolbox we can do many more things than than if you if you're confined to electric motors and then metal struts that you have to put together. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems then when we look at control, we're still using the old tools. We still use uh, control theory, which is a very powerful tool, obviously, but um, we try to push it to the limits and break it. I think um, we, we have to think a little bit more broad in that sense to solve this problem. Um, so this, this, kind of assumptions that we have in control theory. And I'm, I'm coming from control theory, so I completely see that. 
um, in my own work as well that mm-hmm. we we try to put it into boxes, right? That's the plant, that's the environment, that's the controller. Mm-hmm. And I think we have here a huge opportunity to think much, much broader in control. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, what I mentioned before is I'm, I'm very interested in growing and interacting with the environment. So instead of having everything predefined and pre-assembled, um, like building robots like a machine, I think uh, soft robotics gives us the opportunity to take a completely new approach here. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we build robots since the beginning of robotics the same way, right? We have, we build them as machines. We built them with the same tools, electric motors, uh, metal parts. And there's a good reason for that, right? Because it makes it much, much easier to model such systems and therefore much easier to control. So it's an engineering-based approach. But um, now having these new tools, we try to do the same things now with soft structures. And, and we can see that it's not so easy. So we, we can actually embrace it and say, OK, maybe we have to build robots in a different way. And one approach is that we take here is to say, OK, maybe we just have to equip the robot with the right tools to mm-hmm. develop themselves, right? Uh, so. Um, this could be on the controller side, but also on the morphological side. Um, we can equip them with growing mechanisms, right? And then they can interact with the environment. And even if they have the same learning algorithms in the same body, if you throw them into different kind of environments, depending on the feedback they get from these two different environments, they will devolve into different kind of structures. So they would be much more robust, much more adaptive. Uh, uh, and we would also build system for them to allow to have emerging solutions instead of giving them the solution beforehand. Mm-hmm. I think this is a very important point because you always say that there is a hidden superpower in a morphological computation, but controller is not playing so much. And that resonates me with Professor Anthony Becky because he already highlighted something about the controller. We design a controller that destroys the natural dynamic of soft robotics. And this yeah. is something uh, I don't know what your thoughts about possible solution. If you think that we just fitting something is not matching uh, the nature of the robotics. Yes, I, I think he. I, I was listening to his podcast as well, and um, I think he put it really well. Uh, it's really the problem that in a, in a conventional control approach using conventional robotics. What we try to do is to force the system into doing something, right? Mm-hmm. We consider the body as the enemy, so to say, and we we try to have high dock servo motors, a lot of energy in order to follow exactly this kind of trajectory that we wanted to do, uh, which is good if you want to have high precision, but the, these kind of things are not very energy efficient. Mm-hmm. And this only works if you have a perfect model or nearly perfect model of your body and also the environment, which is okay for an assembly line or under lab conditions. But if you go out into the forest, for example, you cannot have enough sensory information in order to understand everything that happens in the environment. Mm-hmm. It's dynamically changing. There's a lot of noise. So even having a precise plan will not help you uh, because uh, it might not work out the way you want it to do. And, um, and also it plays into energy efficiency, right? If you have a system that you're forced to do something, um, instead of actually let the system go and have this kind of underactuation, or uh, like when we walk, we, we swing the leg as a pendulum. We don't control every mm. muscle all the time, every single millisecond as a robot usually does. Uh, we use this kind of potential energy, use it as a swinging movement into kinetic energy, and we get this momentum going. 
Um, and this is much more energy efficient, right? Mm. Uh, also, if you have compliance and you have this impact, you have the impact go through your body, compress, for example, come a spring and release at the right point in time. Um, again, you don't want to control every single aspect. Mm. And this is actually something that we see in our work in morphological computation. If you want to do computation, you cannot control or you don't want to control every single degree of freedom because otherwise the body would do what you wanted to do uh, instead of actually let it do what it should do, like do some computation and you just read it out after that, for example. So it's very, very closely connected to that. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. So let me ask you how you envision intelligence and soft robotics as you, your work and in future also. How you envision intelligence soft robotics? Um, intelligence is, is a is a difficult term. Um, obviously, the artificial intelligence part will play an important role. Uh, there are exciting things going on uh, with deep learning, for example. Um, so that that, but that's a different community. They they will converge um, mm -hmm. in the future. I I would think so. Um, so we are working more on the on the morphological sides. Um, and how this morphological side should interact with the like the brain side, so to say, and with the environment. Um, I think in order to have a truly intelligent robot, whatever this means, uh, you need both sides. You need the body and the environment. Um, for example, um, currently, if you look at um, machine learning, approaches like deep learning, uh, they are so successful because they have so many data points. And you can do that if you have millions of pictures mm -hmm. or you have a simulation of a computer game, you can do it over and over again. But if you have a real physical robot, uh, you you cannot run it a million times, it will break before that. Yeah. So there has to be done something in simulation, um, then there's a gap between simulation and reality, which maybe morphology can cover for that. Uh, because it's some kind of robustness built in there if it's soft. Um, so I think they have to work together in order to have a robot that is truly intelligent in the sense that it can interact intelligently with the physical environment, but also on the social side with humans, for example. So you need some kind of uh, machine learning approaches there as well. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a good point about simulation to reality. I, I, I don't know, uh, do you think that the current uh, tools could enable us to come up with realistic solution, or do you think there are such challenges in this regard? So for both. I think both. I think it's promising, and we still have challenges mm -hmm. uh, ahead of us. Um, I would assume there's always going to be a gap because there are things that we don't consider, even if we could simulate it perfectly in the simulation, um, that we don't consider as a designer of the simulation. Um, so there always is a need for certain kind of um, uh, uncertainty or robustness in the system and soft robotics could play this particular part, I think. Um, uh, I don't know if what could be interesting project you're currently working or something in the future coming up, interesting projects and soft robotics. Okay, um, well, we are working currently on a project um, that's called Computing with Spiderwebs. Um, it's a Libum Trust project. Um, where we work together with um, the zoology department in Oxford. Um, mm -hmm. And we look at spider webs um, for a very particular reason, because they're very interesting morphological structures. Mm -hmm. So they are made out of different types of silk, um, which have different kind of dynamic properties. 
and the spider puts quite a lot of effort into the web in order to maintain it. Uh, it repairs it, it makes sure the tension is in the right regime. Um, there's a lot of things going on on the web, so the spiders, um, even though they have a lot of eyes, have very bad eyesight. I mean, there are jumping spiders which have good eyesight, but usually the ones are sitting in all webs are really bad at, at seeing things. So they perceive their environment mostly through their uh, vibration sensors, uh, mm. these kind of mechanical receptors they have on their legs. And it seems to be they're able to understand what's going on in the web by just listening through these vibrations. Um, so they can immediately see if there's something going on, like is there a fly and I have to go over there and kill it? Or is it a wasp and it has to stay away? Mating happens there as well. Mm. Um, there is also a species of spider who goes over to other webs and they dance around and this sounds very intriguing mm. and sexy for them. So they go over, but then they get eaten. Yeah. So there's a lot of communication going on in this kind of webs. and. Mm. Um, the, the, the amount of energy that a spider puts into the web is um, astounding. So um, it cannot be just a simple trap to catch some flies. Mm. Um, so people have been thinking about what could be the actual reason of the spider beyond being a trap and a spider web beyond being just a simple trap. And it has been speculated that it's used as some kind of signal processing device. So they have this kind of complex structure there is not just helping the spider to understand what's going on by just reading it out, but also helps to filter out uh, important information, gets rid of noise, um, mm. because the brain of the spider also is very simple. So um, we believe that the spider uses its kind of uh, webs for some kind of vibration signal processing devices. And we're looking at spider webs. Um, we shoot uh, lasers at them, we excite them and see uh, what kind of vibrations are actually happening in such spider webs? Um, then we also here in Bristol we build sensors based on that. So we we want to build um, spider web like structures and use it as uh, vibration and flow sensors. Mm -hmm. So that that's mm -hmm. one project which which is currently running, which I'm really excited about. And um, the other projects are. Um, more or less all connected to growing in one sense or another. Um, for example, we are looking at one uh, project where we have a robot that grow from a tadpole into a frog. So it's a very strong morphological change. And mm -hmm. the idea behind that is um, that growing itself might be even useful for robots to learning. They can guide the learning process. Mm. Because if you look at a frog, ro frog robot, you would have a lot of degrees of freedom, a lot of sensors. And if you want to find controllers for that, you have a very high dimensional state space. So it makes it quite difficult to find a good solution there. But on the other side, if you look at tadpole, and if you have a soft tadpole, for example, you could have one degree of freedom that flaps the little tail around. So it's quite easy to find a good controller for that. And then what you can do is you can grow a little legs, which could be completely passive, but mm -hmm. they would change slightly the dynamic model. And then you can reuse your previous experience, your previous controller and adapt it again. And then you grow your legs even more and then even more and more and more. So basically you always use this previous experience and this growing process helps you to guide you along this optimization landscape and opens it up. Mm -hmm. And there's some preliminary results uh, by Josh Pongard's group um, and also from our simulations that show that if you go through the stages, you end up with a controller that is more robust than when you find the controller in the full blown up space of the frog robot, for example. And also 
there seems to be some more robustness in this kind of systems because you've gone through these different stages. So you've experienced different kind of things and you've optimized not just for the final version, but for all the versions before that. So we believe that growing can be very helpful uh, to actually guide this kind of learning process as well. Mm -hmm. um, another project would be, uh, again, with learning where we not try to optimize. So this is a simulation project with um, Cat Walker where we look at uh, um, simulated blobs. We use Voxcat for that as well, um, where we look at um, not to optimize the morphology or the controller, but rather we want to optimize rules on how to adapt the controller or the morphology. So you could have genetically encoded rules for adaptation. So you interact with the environment, you get some feedback, use these rules, and then you adapt your morphology. Mm -hmm. So you could have two genetically identical twins. You throw them into different environments, one into the sea, one onto Mars. They're wiggling around, they get different kind of feedback using the same rules then adapt the morphology into different kind of structures. Mm -hmm. That's a very fascinating point, but I would like to go for first a project. What could be the potential application? Because it's really fascinating to study these uh, spiderwebs. What could yes. be the applications? So the, the, the application that we have in mind is, is vibration sensors. So you could imagine you put, for example, some kind of spiderweb-like structure on like a machine that vibrates. Mm -hmm. And uh, now you can put a vibration center into the middle of the web, for example, or a different position. And then you could learn even uh, unsupervised what kind of vibrations are the ones statistically that show up normally. And then they can give you basically a heads up if something goes wrong. So mm. if the machine slightly vibrates in a different way than expected, so they would shut down the machine and look for the actual error. You can also have that uh, same kind of principles in like in a tube with water, for example, and if a system of tubes and you don't know what happens somewhere, but you can measure the flow. And if there's a change in the flow, um, you can use these morphological structures as some kind of filtering device that you can learn to use in order to filter out uh, what is nominal behavior, what is uh, behavior that hasn't been there before, for example, detect early on some kind of changes in the system, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. So do you think it's a challenging because you now you work in different uh, different aspects. You have to understand how the spider webs and, and it same applies to soft robotics community because we have to understand different aspects and sometimes it could be challenging. I don't know from your experience, do you think this is really challenges or just something we can work on? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, obviously it, it is a challenge because you you talk to people who have uh, um, sometimes a different approach to research. Uh, they also ha use different kind of terminology. Sometimes they use the same terms, but it means something completely different. So there are definitely challenges. I personally love working interdisciplinary because um, mm -hmm. there's always the we if you work and if you're stuck in your own field of research, you you always have this kind of assumptions that you never never question because everyone in the field is saying the same things over and over again. So you basically, as a young researcher, you, if you grew up in a field, uh, these are the unwritten rules that that's the way it is, right? So uh, having somebody from outside, they can ask these questions because they say, well, why are you doing that this way, right? And then you really have to think about it and explain it. And, and quite a lot of time, it, it turns out, well, just because historically we've done it, but now it's not necessary anymore, right? Um, I think um, 
like conventional robotics, the way we build robots, it's the way we've always done it, but it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be that way. And soft robotics is challenging this kind of assumption, right? But we also have assumptions in soft robotics as well. And working with people from outside helps you to challenge these kind of assumptions and, and actually uh, think broader. And also, I truly believe that the most exciting research and the breakthroughs are happening at these intersections of different fields. Mm-hmm. Because um, talking to people outside from your field can give you a new perspective, a new point of view. And suddenly you you see things through a different kind of lens and then suddenly, which seem to be unsolvable, suddenly it, uh, there is a solution, a new way to do it, for example. So I, I, I think there's a huge opportunity, but it takes patience, it takes effort, and you have to be willing to be wrong. That's also very important yeah, as that's well. A good yes. point, yeah. mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know what you think about the short or long-term challenges that could face soft robotics research community at all. Something come to mind, oh, that could be challenging uh, now or maybe later. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think, I mean, we're still early um, in the history of soft robotics, so to say. Um, so we still have kind of the luxury that we can be very explorative and, and play around. Uh, with a lot of uh, new approaches. Um, I think one of the obvious challenges are, um, of course, the, the control problem uh, connected with that, the learning problem, that suddenly we have so complex dynamics. Mm-hmm. And I think morphological computation is a way to actually approach it. It's not the only way, but I, I would like to believe it can contribute something there. Um, then, of course, we have to make at one point in time the transition from being a very exciting field of research that builds prototypes in the lab, we have to move on to also building real uh, systems that are useful for society. And um, there are a lot of approaches that are very promising. We're still not yet there. Um, I mean, in general, as it turns out, it's really hard to have a hardware robotics company anyway, not just in soft robotics, but in general. So, um, but I'm, I'm I'm kind of optimistic about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, another one is, is about the hype. We have to make sure that we don't overhype ourselves uh, by promising things. But I don't think knowing the people in the field, that's actually uh, one of the bigger issues. But we just have to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Great. So let me ask you a futuristic question. Sometimes come to your mind how you would imagine soft robotics would be in the future, would be in homes, or how you see it, something in your imagination, how you see it? Yes, I, I think it will be part of robotics, right? There will be very specific niches where robotics, uh, or soft robotics, particular soft robotic approaches would be very useful. Um, and some of those are already emerging, right? like, um, like for um, non-invasive surgery, for example, you want to have something which is more soft than some kind of metal struts put into your body. Um, um, anything that is on body, like exoskeletons, I think softness is really good. Um, I mean, there's also the softness aspect of when you interact with humans, um, one part could be potentially safety, but also it's just like more a little bit nicer to interact with something that is soft than, than like uh, Terminator style, uh, cold kind of uh, uh, iron mm-hmm. uh, structure. I think this would help also to uh, apply robotics to a much broader 
um, field of, of, of applications, uh, so to say. Um, uh, I think um, th there will be more things coming up that we don't think about yet, uh, but I think these are the ones that, that are the most promising ones mm -hmm. currently. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you how we can ensure that soft robotics would be beneficial to humans as well, from your experience, how we can make sure it's beneficial? Um, I think a good approach is really not just to think about building a cool prototype, but always have a really clear application in mind. Mm -hmm. um, so even if you do very, very basic research, and, and that's what we do in our lab, we always think about, okay, how could that be useful in society? What could be an application for that? Uh, because this is like a guidance for you, right? It might be turned out on the way to there, it, it's not feasible or, or maybe, maybe there are better solutions for that, but it's for starting out, I think it's really good to have applications in mind. Mm -hmm. So do you think there is ethics or regulation we have to follow up in our research, something that we have to come up with? I, I think, yes, I mean, regulations uh, will be part um, of any kind of field that has matured. I think it's it's a sign of maturance that when you, when you feel, okay, now we are so close or we have so many applications in the real world that we need regulations and, and I think that should be done yes uh, we, 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 we can and we should start thinking about these kind of things um, but also like ethical uh, implication I think mm -hmm. that's something that we should discuss as well in the, in the field much more mm -hmm. so let me ask you whether do you think of robotics is, is really welcomed in industrial sector do you think there's something is happening real to concerning uh, having soft robotics as a technology and industry? Mm. Yes, uh, in, in my experience, when I talk to industrial partners, they, they all are very excited on one side, um, mm -hmm. but also skeptical on the other side. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it, it's quite easy for them to see how it can be beneficial, but we haven't showed that yet. So they, they see the potential in there, let's put it this way. And I, I remember also when I, was working in RoboSoft um, in, in coordinated action. I organized the industrial engagement workshop where we invited um, industrial partners and we talked about soft robotics and uh, tried to establish some kind of collaborations. They were really excited about the potential there. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there are a lot of fields where you could use that, right? In agriculture, in, in, in like um, Amazon, mm -hmm. in, in interaction with humans. Uh, so there are a lot of things where you could use soft robotics, um, but um, it it's always comes back to, okay, can we make it in such a way that it's safe enough uh, that we can actually deploy these kind of uh, things without uh, killing somebody, hurting somebody. Yeah. So um, they have different constraints, right? So for them, it's, is it cheaper, um, right? And these kind of uh, constraints that we usually in the lab don't think so much about that. Mm -hmm. Great. So, let me ask you, how do you see lay people see soft robotics? If you have a, a conversation with people outside the field, how do you see soft robotics? And do you think that maybe uh, the development of robotics could lead on robotics in social inequality? Is this something maybe we didn't consider so much in our research? Do you think, what do you think about these aspects? Well, I think... Um lay people are, are very excited about it um we see that all the time when we mm -hmm. we do quite a lot of outreach activities and 
it's very easy to bring a soft robot with you, right? Uh, you have a coffee balloon gripper, or you have some kind of little a silicon worm that moves around, or a little grasper with donut sensor on. So it's it's they, they can touch it, it's safe, they can try it out, and this is something which engages them a lot with the technology. And uh, and like I said before, it's it's just much nicer to touch something which is soft than any kind uh, kind of metal part, um, and you. You don't want to have that in your vicinity, but if something's soft, you're happy about that. Mm-hmm. So I think what we see, at least uh, from the feedback that we get, people are very excited about it and they really love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that's a really big question. Um, uh, I don't think soft robotic alone could do that. I think mm-hmm. soft robotic as part of robotics uh, could could help that. But uh, I think soft robotics is just too young as a field to to immediately have a societal impact. Yet um, we're on the way to that, um, but this has to go through the more general field of robotics, I think. Uh, and there are a lot of interesting questions, and which I don't think are specific to soft robotics, but to robotics in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. So let me ask you how we make things, make sure that things are going in the right direction as you leading student. What you expecting? That something? It's a long journey sometimes to reach what you're looking for, and sometimes mm. in the middle of the journey, you have this kind of skeptical question. So mm. how you make sure that oh, I'm just going in the right direction? What are the indexes or factors that makes you yes. sure? Yeah. Uh, I, okay. You put it very nicely by saying it's a journey, right? Um, mm-hmm. it, and. Although maybe the vision at the beginning is a certain goal, and you should have a vision uh, for a PhD, which goes over multiple years, um, the the goal might change because along the journey you learn something new, and you might have to adapt your your vision. You might have to adapt what you want to achieve. Maybe you want to dive very deep into something, um, and the original plan doesn't work out as planned. I think if if you would have a project for a PhD where you know exactly every single step until the end, it wouldn't be a PhD project, it would be rather an MSc project or a bachelor project. So this, this, this openness, and you have to be comfortable with that uh, as a PhD student, as well as uh, as a supervisor, that we don't know where we go, right? By definition, you want to go beyond the state of the art, you want to contribute a new part for the state mm-hmm. of the art. And you don't know what's behind that. I mean, there's, of course, some experience that you know, okay, this has been tried before, this didn't work, or you have a lot of intuition as well that plays into that, that is, okay, that might work, or this one doesn't. But I, I, I think um, you you never know what's around the corner, so mm-hmm. uh, you have to roll with the punches, because sometimes it's a little bit more difficult, uh, there will be up and downs, and uh, I think for me as a supervisor, for example, I have to make sure that they know that, that it's not just always down, and always up, um, these kind of things are happening in every PhD, for example, yeah. mm. or every project in general, which yeah. takes longer than just one year. Yeah. So I don't know if you have designed a robot on a regular daily basis and ending up using at your home, if you have any robots at your home using. You have any? Um, well, I, I do. I so have kids. So what we <laughs> use, which is not really soft robot, but use Lego robotics, uh-huh. uh, which is a lot of fun for them to playing around. Um, and uh, we make all kind of goofy stuff there, mm-hmm. um, but it's not really soft robotics in that sense. I mean, we uh, I casted a couple of things that we used mm-hmm. for outreach. I did these kind of things, but um, 
Um, usually now I, I let my students do that because they're much better doing that than I. <laughs> so they, they are actually much better at building these prototypes. Okay, cool. So as you are a BT supervisor, let me ask you what's the kind of, just what you're looking for the student. Is it skills or the traits? How you envision the student from your eye? Um, that's a really good question. I think one big point is, which I mentioned already before, I think curiosity is very important. That somebody who starts out with um, his or her PhD should be really excited about the topic. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think it's a good idea that I, as a supervisor, provide a topic and then they, they say, yes, okay, that's, that's whatever we do. I mean, obviously there will be more guidance in the beginning, but uh, I think somebody has to be really excited about it, uh, about the potential, about what is possible, uh, and be very curious about it. So that, that's one, one part that I'm looking forward. Um, the second part is that people should be proactive. So mm -hmm. I think uh, as a group to be successful, it cannot be the case that the, the, the director of the lab or the head of the group is, is basically telling everyone what to do. I, I don't like to micromanage mm. um, because also it confines, because I cannot think of so many ideas, right? Yeah. But this is a very confined space. But if you have many more people and you provide basically environment so they can speak up, can freely explore things, mm -hmm. um, they can actually come up with their own ideas. I think that's, that's very, very important. Um, because if I look back, the, the biggest and the greatest idea that came out of um, mm -hmm. Of, of collaborations with, with students. These were my ideas. These were the students have the paper ideas and, and what they want to do next. And I just try to guide them, right? And I think this is much, much more successful than when I just do all the things that I can think of, which is very, very limited anyway. And the third part I'm also looking in my PhD students is uh, because you want to work with somebody over a uh, number of years, mm -hmm. I, I look for some, and this might seem to be a little bit counterintuitive, but I look for some kind of kindness in people. I, I really like to work with people who are helping other people. This doesn't mean within a group. It could be mm -hmm. uh, they can go out to schools and help um, kids uh, with learning disabilities or um, just people who are, are nice and kind to each other. I think this is uh, very important as well, mm -hmm. uh, at least for my group. I think that's very important. Yeah. I think this is a very important point because sometimes it's underestimated in academia when you have high IQ and low EQ. That's that's something I think we have to um, in, in instilling in the student to be kind and uh, because it's a future will be supervisor. So this something is really important. But let me ask you if you have like an argument with a student about research. How you handle this argument? Um, well, I don't think we have a lot of like arguments but more discussions right uh -huh. um and and the discussion i think is something positive mm -hmm. because um we're discussing different ideas and um and i think it's always important to to remind myself that where we are going with a phd project for example mm -hmm. uh, i don't know either what's going to happen right yeah. um i have some ideas a vision and the student as well and we have to make sure we we have the same vision or at least close enough vision that we work together on that but um th there's a lot of times a day when i meet with mm -hmm. students that i have to say i don't know 
let's try it out. I don't know. It could be this or that. Uh, I don't know. Let's try it out. And um, I think you have to be open to be wrong. And mm -hmm. also you have to be very willing to admit that you're wrong. Uh, I think you have this kind of um, beginner's mind, basically, which is a concept in Buddhism as well, right? That, that everything is new. You, you, you feel you have experienced that, but actually everything is new from one moment to another one. And, and you should keep this curiosity going on. Mm -hmm. um, so I think um, I see it more as a discussion. Um, I don't think we have really had head on uh, arguments um, <laughs> where we're struggling to understand each other. If that's the case, then, then I have to pull back and say, okay, what's going on here? And, and mm -hmm. I'm just, okay, um, what, what are we doing here? And that's my responsibility as a supervisor. Mm, that's great. So let me ask you what the best advice was given to you uh, and was life changing, was it professionally and personally that you would like to share with our audience? Oh, mm, the best advice. Um, if you want to do a research project, for example, you write a proposal or something like that, and, and I give this advice now as well, <laughs> um, is that you should do something that only you could do. Mm -hmm. like look at your skill, skill sets and see, okay, what, what is the only thing that you could do but no one else could do? I think this is something uh, which is makes it more likely, and of course you have to be excited about it, but uh, um, be sure that that it fits your skill set, and then you uh, it will be successful. Actually, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, great. So, at the end of podcast, could you please just tell us any final words you would like to share well, about the robotic community? Final words. Um, okay. Um, well. I think the software products community is, is, is really, really great. Uh, it's very welcoming. So I hope to see many of you people, um, if you're not from software products community, that you come to the community, come to our conference. Um, I'm happy to chat with anyone about their ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm happy to also give them some advice if they want to. If not, that's fine as well. <laughs> and. Uh, well, and I would like to thank you as well for doing this uh, podcast. I thank think you. it's an excellent idea. I, I really enjoyed listening to other people so um, in the field. And, and I think this is very, very helpful for us, especially for younger researchers to hear uh, about other people, what they're doing in the field. Thanks. Thank you for doing that. Thanks so much. And on behalf of IEEE Rest of Robotics, TC, I would like to thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you.